The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? That moment you lose a job, or a loved one, or even a piece of yourself. I'm Brooke Shields, and this is Now What? A podcast about pivotal moments as told by people who lived them. Each week I sit down with a guest to talk about the times they were knocked off course and what they did to move forward. Some stories are funny. Others are gut-wrenching. But all are unapologetically human and remind us that every success and every setback is accompanied by a choice. And that choice answers one question. Now what? What title do you wear now with pride? I think it's... I think it is kind. And only a truly, deeply kind person would adopt a dog with one eye and name him Wink. (laughs) Oh my God, thank you. I loved Wink. Wink is still my soul dog. I remember seeing you with Wink and thinking, how cool that somebody is like that. It was my first lesson in like disability and turning it ahead to be like kind of a strength. I just, Seriously, I know that sounds so silly, but it was like people at the time were really freaked out by this one eyed dog. Like I'd see reactions. We were outside at a restaurant and I was like, oh, Thelma was just so happy. And then you were like, and I see the dog and you go, this is Wink. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, I couldn't love you more. I was like, of course. His name is Wink. Thank you. You know, Guillermo del Toro even named a character Wink in Hellboy 2, so it inspired the greats. Guillermo, Brooke liked it. My guest today is Selma Blair. She's a brilliant actor, a mom, an advocate, and an author. She's also remarkably kind and self-reflective. Traits that are rare in life and even more so in Hollywood. Selma's had a long career on both stage and screen, which has been marked by blockbuster success in films like Cruel Intentions, Legally Blonde, and Hellboy. In 2018, she announced that she was diagnosed with MS, which was a disease that she had unknowingly struggled with for many years. 
And since then, she's chronicled her experience in her documentary, Introducing Selma Blair. She's participated in Dancing with the Stars. And she's penned her book, Mean Baby, which is one of the best memoirs I've ever read. I'm really thrilled that she agreed to do this show. Here is Selma Blair. Hi. Oh, God. Dear Brooke Shields. Is that my book? Yeah. How long have you had <laughs> the Brooke book? That's crazy. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, my God. But yes. That's wild. You, you drew in that? Oh, my God. No, <gasps> it had like a library card saying it's mine. And I wrote Selma Blair because I knew one day I would be Selma Blair, not Blair Biden, oh my who I was. God. <laughs> it's the Brooke book. And it was put out in 1978. And I got it, you know, at, at about that age. I was born in 72. And um, it was, it has photographs of you and they're all obviously unbelievably beautiful. And it's like, you know, a little documentary book. And it was so precious to me. And I didn't have many things, truly. I only had a couple things. I had a book on Greece, the movie, <laughs> this. You know, there were a couple things that I had. Did your mom buy you that book? Yes. She bought me this book and she encouraged me to be okay with, um, you're, you're going to love this book to be okay with, you know, my face that, you know, my straight brown hair, I wanted blonde and, and, be you know, beautiful eyebrows like yours and flat chest. There was a picture of you in the Scavula book and you're a child. Oh yeah. And so of course you have a flat chest. <laughs> so, but, but I was encouraged because my flat chest stayed a really long time. In fact, to this day, but anyhow, <laughs> while for you later on, you know, it has all these different things for me, it was such a pure, way to look at the body and be proud of you just as you are, flat-chested, a child, whatever, with broad shoulders. So to me, your whole your whole picture brought about the only self-love, honestly, I could feel about my body because I was so detached from it too because I was so wow. busy living up to a mean baby that could uh, be cleverly mean. But you know, it's interesting because when you, you talk about labels being sticky mm -hmm. and you say labels are sticky and, you know, and our, we start with our mothers. Oh, that's my athletic one. Oh, that's my arty one. And we don't think that they have an affect, but they actually can really have an enduring on a affect on a on a person on the way they go forward in the world. Right, it seems unavoidable almost. You know, it is just a thing that parents probably do all the time. But yes, my mom had a vision for me to be you or Gwyneth Paltrow type of thing. Oh, <laughs> Your mom had a big. It really was. She was like, just get tall and beautiful. But anyhow, you had you having this documentary um, come out, and I did watch it because, of course, I'm still a brook you know, like fandom queen, but it was amazing. This, I mean, you were already born pretty, so it was a self-fulfilling prophecy no matter what, like that you were a pretty baby and that stuck with you. Did it bother you when you were little? Like, did you notice it? What it did was it detached me entirely from my body. It, it detached me from my face. Wow. And it just meant I was nothing but that. And so I became vigilant in nurturing everything else that wasn't connected to looking a certain way, you know, but I'm, right. I'm really curious about you. What was your personal relationship with beauty as a child? Uh, I know I didn't think about it as a really little one. I remember not thinking about it when I was like two and a half or three, when I started having memories and I was kind of looked like a boy and people called me Blair and I kind of didn't, I just didn't have that sense of femininity or looking in the mirror. Maybe I didn't reach the mirror. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't remember thinking anything. And then I remember in kindergarten, 
I really wanted to wear dresses, but people made fun of me. I was still a boy. And it wasn't until, honestly, that I saw your book because I had really thick eyebrows. And people would make fun of me a little. Nothing horrible, but definitely a little. And my mom got me your book. And that really, funnily enough, introduced me to beauty and what I thought would be amazing to look like and act like. Your grace. Really, I don't say this to... Um, be a sycophant to you. I say this because it is amazing that your experience for you is so different than your experience for me. That That's so oh, touching for me to hear because to me, there was arrogance and everything. You know, why, why would I be, who's to say? Mm. It's so layered too, your mom buying you that book and you, the person in your book, and I loved your book, and I, I both read it and Thank listened you to so it. Much. And we grew up with very powerful maternal figures in our lives. And when you write about your mom, I'm so interested in it because you say your mom was your first great love. I can't quite shake it either. You know, it's still there, um, which is good, thank God, because she's my mother and you want to have that feeling. But she touched and or contaminated every part of my being just for, by the sake of being a mother and being the one I looked to, we were very much only had each other. She's obviously so impressive. And I think, and she was a lawyer, she was a judge. Right. She never even graduated like Vassar or, or high school and then went on to Vassar after not graduating high school. And then, isn't that amazing? And then went to law school without having graduated Vassar. It was like the last, and she was one of the only women in her law school. And it was only because she got married, thought she'd be a doctor's wife. He left and she had a little baby. And uh, so she sat in her room, played solitaire, smoked cigarettes for one week, grieved, got up, applied to law school and said, fuck it, I'm not going to ever let anyone boss me around again. So she became a lawyer and then a judge for 40 years. And she was home by dinner every night at seven. To cook for her family. I mean, she sort of lived her life like a single mother, even though she was remarried. She did. And I viewed her as that. And that's why my father was rather inconsequential for me. But I was actually thinking yesterday of all the things he did. You know, he put me in good schools. He did pay for schools and stuff. My mom kind of paid for herself and our clothes. And dad paid for education and camps and all that. But the mother is your lifeline. You know, it's the umbilical cord. It's, it's, I, I. It was shocking when my mother died. Did you feel that too? I I watched it and I thought if I watch it, I will believe it's true. Right. I will absorb everything I should of this and it will go through me and and it will be natural. Nothing about it. And, and I, and it. Nothing prepared me for the, I felt I still do. I felt adrift. Were you with her? No, it was COVID. It was in the beginning of COVID. I had no idea. It was just a shock. It was the beginning of COVID. So even though my mother and I was writing the book and I'd just done the bone marrow transplant and I couldn't get to her or my family or any of it, there was no closure. It's still painful to think about what we all went through and what we all go through in life, what we all go through. It's amazing we get up the next day sometimes when I think of it, because it was the thing that would break my heart. Of course, people go through much worse, but on the scale of things that break your heart and leave you with a sense of things you can't resolve, it's not being there. Where was it with your mom when she died? It was while she started having um, some, you know, forgetful, like things were happening to her. So it got quite detached. And I had to just think, she's gone already. 
Did she recognize you? She did. She The last time I saw her, I said, can you give me a kiss? And she was like, oh, no. And I was like, oh, it's her. Because she hated giving kisses and <laughs> hugging, and all I wanted was that. So she did, and she kissed me on my forehead gently, gently. And I had my sister take a picture, even though she looked awful, and she would kill me if she knew I took that picture. But it meant everything to have my mother gently kissing my head because she never really, it'll never be enough, you know? Oh, you st- I still turn into, my mother would say, maudlin. You know, she'd make fun of me. Oh, Selma, stop acting up. That beautiful, brilliant woman, Brooke Shields, and audience don't want to hear you sniveling about your dead mother. You know, I mean, she was just <laughs> tough. My mother would be like, keep talking about me. Just keep talking about me. Forget who you're interviewing. Oh Just keep talking about me. <laughs> well, she was worthy of it. She made a good one. But it is amazing how in perspective I've let go of the things that upset me. And I only want to think of love. Like, I really am turning to that, to not consciously pivoting in my life. And I did that with my sobriety. And then even more when I felt I can trust myself with the diagnosis and all those things. And so the things like mother or the pain of mother dying in COVID or all those things, I just I just look at classrooms now. You know, things I guess I, I needed or I needed so I could help someone else. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Looking back, I was really shocked when I read your book because Mm. I had just no idea that you were struggling in your personal life. Mm -hmm. You were a household name, but you were never tabloid fodder. No. I was always a loner. You know, I was, I was a, I'm a loner that talks a lot when I'm out in public. But also because I was a drinker, 
I knew I couldn't control it because I had done it very young and knew I would get myself in bad situations. So by the time I was grown enough to have moved here, I really didn't go out and drink much. That happened like once. So you drank alone. I drank alone. That's a very good alcoholic. You were a very good alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I was a purist. I was a purist. <laughs> and sort of the true meaning of functioning alcoholic because it never interfered no. with. Right. I, I'm sure I could have chosen, like, better, made better choices, and I could have had maybe a less complicated life if I didn't have drinking. But then I also think, would I have survived it? Because I was also. I thought so depressive. I have no idea if it was MS fatigue or depression. It's hard to have a vocabulary for what you don't know you are. It's just like a low. So I don't know. I never really knew what I was feeling. The drinking definitely masked physical and emotional just so I could bear life. So it was a crutch. It was a crutch. It was a life raft. It was saving me until I didn't know how to stop. And I was not engaging normally and going through things in real time. But you said you started at seven years old. What Mm -hmm. crutch do you think you needed at seven to start sipping all the drinks? I remember feeling shame at age three. About what? Um, Shame because I didn't, had to do with, uh, in in preschool, I was uh, spanked by the teacher because I was Uh, didn't clean something up that wasn't mine, blah, blah, blah. And I was, and I stood up for myself and she put me over her lap and she repeatedly hit me as I cried. I'm sad. I'm sad. Cause I had a nanny that said what I said, what do I say? If I feel like I don't want to go on. And she said, you have to tell people if you're sad, you tell people. And so I took her advice. And in that moment of panic, I, you know, as she was slapping me and through my tears at the other kids, I said, I'm sad, I'm sad. And she didn't stop. And It put such a distrust in the world. And then when I started getting sick or losing my eyesight and they couldn't see it because it was a brain thing. And that was also distrust in myself because they were saying it's, it's, she's, I don't know why she's so sensitive. So those two things made me very afraid of the world at a very young age. I was a sensitive person, I guess. And, and I was terrified. So that drink at age seven of not feeling like I trust myself, not believed what I said, or it wouldn't be heard or you know, life moved fast. I was one of four kids. I was sensitive. Maybe I had an asshole of a teacher. It was a different time. I didn't know how to say things in the right tone of voice. I have no idea, but I had an emotionally hard time for whatever reason. And, um, and I didn't trust myself. And the drinking was a huge self. Well, nobody was allowing you. They weren't validating any of your emotions. Right. Do you remember when you, like, when you first started what you now know is juvenile MS? It was probably when I was like six or seven, and it was an optical neuritis issue. But that was never looked into. It was just called a lazy eye. But then once we did other tests, and then I had optical neuritis again at 23, and it was always my symptoms of MS, whether it was prodromal or whatever it is called, whatever it was, it was very similar, and optical neuritis. And I just... I was not believed and I lost bladder function and things were happening and Ehlers-Danlos and so a kidney kind of fell and things were happening that just were showing I was having a struggle, (laughs) you know, with my nervous system and and stuff. Well, it's striking to me how long you had it. I know. And if I were a boy, I do believe there was one doctor and it was after I had, um, it was actually my eye doctor of all things, but it was he, after I had overdosed, um, from extreme grief about something, I was put in my first rehab at twenty on my twenty third birthday, 
and I got sober for the first time. But the um, it, my father, Elliot, uh, took me to go get, like, while you're in town from New York, let's get your appointments. And I went to the eye doctor. I was twitching and having all these tics, which I'd never had this long. And these things from this episode of um, this overdose caused a little bit of brain trauma. And um, the eye doctor, after looking in my eye, just said, do you have MS? <laughs> you know, it was like I thought it would be something you'd know. You know, like I didn't know what MS really was, but I knew that it was maybe movement or breathing. I, I didn't really know, but it was like more extreme than anything I, you know, any doctor ever told me I had. And I was searching for a long time. I had all these, you know, autoimmune issues that kind of racked up. So he said it. And then I did. I went to a neurologist. But by that time, that the optical neuritis had faded. And so he didn't see it, which happens with MS, but he never did give me an MRI, even though I also had the tics and everything. And he said, oh, those are just like chronic seizures from, you know, the little bit of brain damage. It'll go away as that goes away. And it's like, oh my God, they were such clear signs of MS. I mean, how do you think things would have been different if you had gotten the diagnosis earlier? I think my emotional state would have been a lot stronger because I would have had some realization that I could trust myself that I could get back into my body, that there'd be a way to sort through this kind of distance I had from myself because um, I was scared and didn't trust myself. I thought, well, I'm just hypersensitive. So that would have done something for me. It would have probably saved a, a couple years of grief in my life. But I don't know if I was ready. I wasn't ready, I guess, because I think they would have considered a very harsh diagnosis then. I might not have gone on the same way, and I was still drinking. How many times did it take you? I say this because my mother was in rehab three or four times, arrested a couple times, mm -hmm. and never got sober. Mm. But whenever I hear and see a story of sobriety and the work that it takes every day, I know that, and it's forever. But when I look at the years of sobriety, I'm in such awe of what place you had to get to to get there. How many times did it take? I am too. I'm so grateful that I'm not, you know, gone because I have a son and there's things now that I have a different perspective on life and I'm very grateful I'm here. But um, it took me, God, I started with attempted uh, like real ways to hurt myself, like very young too. So I got in that mode and I didn't build the other stuff, you know, positive affirmations and kept going down. So I'd say that my first real sobriety was at that 23, and it was only like a few years. Oh, God, I must have had to get sober. I'm not joking. Uh, 20 times? Did you have a good therapist? I do. I actually have a therapist now that's a huge comfort and like a lightning rod for me. But I didn't find, you know, I really do for me, though, I really had to go through it. And no therapy was going to help me until I understood that I actually also had something neurolog neurologically wrong with me because I just keep beating myself up. But how did you, you hit it though? I mean, like, I don't know how. But getting sober, it took until it, it I prayed. I'm not joking, Brooke. I, I prayed every night since I was 23. Please God, make a miracle that I stay sober. Please God, give me the dignity of my humanity to have me not die drunk. I don't know why that counted to me. I'm not saying someone's undignified if they die a drunk. But to me, I wanted to say I died in this body. I pray that remains the case, um, and every day I will be on that. But I do feel the miracle kind of has happened of a different perspective also, where I do feel stronger in, in that, I, that I absolutely feel I, I need and want to be sober. I didn't want to before. 
I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step, and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the reason I asked you to be on this show is that I think you are such an inspiration. Oh, thank you. I mean, Dancing with the Stars, I can't even. It was terrifying to me. I never wanted to do it. Never, never, never. Except when you were young, you did Circus of the Stars. I did do Circus of the Stars. <laughs> I first trained the dogs. I trained the dogs and first. And you know, I was most, I remember that. <laughs> and I was most likely in my high school yearbook at Cranbrook, um, me and Todd Kessler, who's now a brilliant writer, director, truly brilliant, damages, all these things. Um, he and I were voted most likely to be on Circus of the Stars. <laughs> and then it's like, oh my God, it like kind of manifested because that doesn't exist anymore. But Dancing with the Stars is something I never wanted to do. I am not someone that has rhythm. In the sweetest thing, I needed to be trained like 10 years, it felt like, to just do like the electric slide. So what made you say yes? <laughs> what made me say yes is something really horrible to me uh, happened in my life for a moment that I'm now recovered from. But And I was really going back into old patterns, not, not harming, but like the will, my life force went so down with this hit, you know, this emotional hit I had. 
And then when Sasha, my neighbor and now friend, came to me, and he had asked a couple times through the years, come on, you want to do that? And I'm like, never, never, don't ever ask me. And um, so when he did this time, and he kind of convinced me, like, just come with me for an hour. And like, let's see how you move. Let's see if you can be taught. And I went and dancing with him, just doing like a simple like rumba or something. I don't know. I realized if he's holding my hand and if I repeat the step enough, I could get my step where it wasn't like dystonic if it were slow enough. And I thought, oh, wow, this hour with him felt better than the last 50 hours of my life where I was sitting in fear. So let me get out and at least have these hours then with this person showing me something. And it turned out to be so rewarding and beautiful. And I loved everyone on that show. And they loved you and the people loved you and the you looked so beautiful. <laughs> oh God, it was oh just- Oh my God, I'm so touched that you say it, but we all like want to have that moment. I, maybe not all of us, but we all want to have some type of moment, some type of moment that we feel we overcame something that was- Maybe simple to other people. So pat on the back to me. Yeah. You know, for MS, because my MS is very emotionally activated. The ticks and the motion and stuff. So so that was a fear. Like, oh God, I'm gonna and I wouldn't have been able to do it without the goodwill of the people that had been behind me in general, like rooting me on through all that I showed. But that's a testament to you as a survivor. And I used oh, to bristle thank at you. that title. But when I think of endurance, longevity, fortitude or forward moving. Like I, I I think of you and I called this show Now What because mm-hmm. it really boils down to the now what moments in our lives where we must pivot or where we are knocked mm-hmm. off balance. I think we've all had many. Mm-hmm. What is a now what moment for you that stands out? It was huge. My now what? It was it was one of my biggest fears other than a real tragedy um, was my public humiliation. Is this on the plane? Yeah, on the okay. plane All where, right. you know, someone had, you know, where I had uh, obviously been in huge emotional distress and a kind of blackout or um, pass out, whatever. You know, it was just one of those ugly moments. Google me is what I say when, like, <laughs> someone offers me a drink. And I'm like, no, no, I don't, I, I don't want one. Thank you so much. And they're like, no, no, really, just try it. And I'm like, Google me. <laughs> Um, so it was like, I had, (laughs) it was like, I had to immediately make that decision once I had been in that predicament where I had been locked in the room in Mexico with, you know, kind of not a great relationship with, with dad yet, with custody, like trying to make the best of it. Didn't know I was totally in an MS flare. So I was way more off kilter and emotionally, you know, and I just gave up my sobriety. I had had a few years. Mm. So to know that happened on its own, thank God we didn't have to make an emergency landing. It worked. Thank God I didn't, you know, there was a nurse there. I was oxygen and things and being taken. I don't remember any of it. I woke up in a, taken off a stretcher, woke up in the hospital with an IV. The doctor saying, you know, you might have had a silent heart attack. And um, I was like, whoa, where's my son? This has never happened to my, like, where's my son? What happened? And it was my first ever blackout with him, of course. Um, well, maybe not, of course, but it was. And and knowing it was a public humiliation, knowing that I had really, really done a horrendous thing that was going to be life-changing. And I made in that decision, I mean, in that second, I said, your life has changed. You're done. And I felt true apologies for disturbing. Like a lot of things hit me in that moment. And it was like, I can't be this person. I'm going to be sober. 
and you did. And I, I want to, I'm interested in how you, rec- how you recovered. You could have also been handled with more care and not taken advantage yeah. of by some asshole making it public. Absolutely. Not taking into any consideration your son, mm-hmm. your dignity. No. It is interesting, though, that you that something subconscious chose something yeah. so public because you 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 were very good at doing it silently. You're very good at doing it quietly. And it was a totally. It was. I think my angels or whatever it is that guides us just knows that the my low could only handle a public humiliation. I could not handle if I killed someone. I could not handle if I did something just so you know that I couldn't forgive myself. I'm not saying people shouldn't if things happen, but it was this was my first time being discovered. Maybe in the past, boyfriends would experience me like swearing and being like, you're a jerk. Like having tantrums, like as the drunk lady that doesn't realize what they're doing. That happened in my youth and things, and they'd write down me like swearing. Right. But that was, I never done anything this. This was off-brand even for me. Your cover was blown. Because I only drank, my cover was fucking blown. This was my only real cover. The other ones were always suicide attempts that didn't necessarily seem alcoholic, but they always were. What do you think you learned about yourself since that time? Oh, gosh. That if I am not um, wasted, I'm a great person. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm, I'm great enough. You know, I'm great enough. You know, but I realized, like, oh, I can get through, like, almost anything if I just say... Next logical step. Inhale, exhale, next logical step. I can't get in too much trouble. Well, also, it's physical, it's emotional, it's mental. It's a mental next step. It's a physical next step. It's the connection between. Mm-hmm. I know I have a long way to go to feel comfortable in my skin in the heartache way. You know, I carry around grief. I think a lot of people do. And I wonder if there's a way to move forward with really like learning to let that go. If it doesn't serve me anymore, I don't know how to be that person. I want to find joy. I want to believe that like anything can still happen, not just good enough. What are you looking forward to right now? Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to long summer nights because I can stay up longer in the daylight. Like, because I get out usually once the sun's setting. You know, in my life, like out of the house, Mm -hmm. because then I can like walk more clearly. I get more relaxed, you know, my nervous system, all that without the inflammatory properties of the sun. So to me, this is like a whole like more productive. And these are always core memories, these summer times at the longer nights when weather's kind of temperate almost everywhere. But I'm looking forward to manifesting things. Okay, like what? Manifesting, um, gosh. This is something I never, I don't even know how to do. And this is a big thing to admit, but like love, like I've never worked on a relationship, um, like truly, truly thinking I deserve something. And I've always like, my mother's always said, you'll never be with someone you're not meant to be, or I'm too complicated, or I didn't know how to compromise, or I was always trying to please the boyfriend that always would make lists of how to be a better person for me, or this or that. It was ridiculous. Just choosing people that were going to knock me down. Like that was obviously something, you know, that I was playing into. But do you see how a list like that from a boyfriend is about them? Yeah, of course. I mean, and I think I always did, but I'd still want to please them, even though it's about them, because I didn't know where I'd get my next bit of attention paid to me, maybe. Like genuine attention, believing it could be love, believing somewhere this person could be a big part of my life. 
I just had to work through this. And now I do have a sense of what I would actually like, but not much. I've never thought to just manifest like, what would be great to like, what, who, what kind of person do you want in your life? I've never made that list. I never thought I was like, what's the point? That's gross. I don't want to chase something. You know what? I could chase an idea. That's okay. I can chase an idea. <laughs> like I, I'm ready. <laughs> that was Selma Blair. And if you want to hear more from her, check out her new book, Mean Baby. That's it for us today. Tune in next week. Now What with Brooke Shields is a production of iHeartRadio. Our lead producer and wonderful showrunner is Julia Weaver. Additional research and editing by Darby Masters and Abu Zafar. Our executive producer is Christina Everett. The show is mixed by Vahid Frazier. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.